Oh, Lord God, sovereign Lord, holy Lord, the great God and creator, but I don't want to leave out our, also our Father. We pray to you today. We want to pray, Lord, that you would do a work in the lives of our people that need to heal. I pray that you would bring healing to them, even in the most severe cases, as well as the most minor. All healing comes from you. Whether you do it in a miraculous, dramatic sense or whether you use natural means, <clears throat> it all comes from you and we give you praise and glory for that. And I pray, Lord, for the discouraged and the defeated today and I want to ask you to lift them up, build up their faith and strengthen them today so that they leave here with faith and hope and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, you would help the wounded warriors today that are in our midst. They've been under attack. They've been hurt, battered, bruised, betrayed maybe. And we want to pray that they would pick up their armor and dust it off and put it back on and go back to war because you lead us from victory unto victory. And I want to pray that we would experience that victory today in every aspect of life. Some people need victory over addiction. People need victory over depression and victory over grief and victory over uh, all kinds of things that may come their way. And I pray, Lord, that they would be reminded of what we sang about earlier. There's victory in Jesus. Let us experience that, Lord. And Father, we also want to pray today as we think about all of the people in our society that are so confused so depressed and discouraged and we have the life-giving gospel to give to them and we can show them love and we can show them compassion and all do it for the glory of God that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Let it, let it be that way, Lord. <clears throat> Help us to think about other people. As we watch the suicide rate go up in our nation Lord we think about the families that are touched by that and we pray for them today and we pray for people that are struggling with that and pray that you would help them and heal them and strengthen them we think Lord about all of the rebellion and the sinfulness that goes on in our culture today and we have the audacity to call it woke when actually it's death we pray, Lord, that you would bring people to life. And we pray that you would bring them to a conscious awareness of you and who you are and of sin and of your law and of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us from the top levels of our government all the way down to the street in which we live. Help us, dear Lord, we pray. And Father, we pray for our friends and family members that are lost because we sing, let it be today. And yet at the same time, when we think about those who don't know Christ, that's not a happy song and that's not a happy thought. And we pray for their salvation. We pray for restoration of the fallen. We pray for you to reclaim those who have backslidden. And we pray that we would uh, be living right and be the right example before them to show the beauty and the excellence and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we come saying that we as broken and flawed people, we have no right in and of ourselves to even approach you, and you have 
no obligation to answer us except for this one thing. We belong to Jesus Christ. He died in our place. He is our Lord and Savior. We are in Him and He is in us. And we thank you that we are accepted in the Beloved and that we can actually come before you and make our requests known to you. And we can actually come, the Bible says, boldly <clears throat> with confidence before you. And so we thank you for that and thank you for hearing us. And we ask you to do this for your glory and bless us in the meantime. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, fit in with what we've been looking at as we think about the way sin can come up and, in a sense, sometimes it blindsides believers and uh, we uh, get tackled from behind by some things. David certainly was. He never intended for all of this stuff to happen with Bathsheba. And he never intended to be a murderer of Uriah the Hittite. He never intended to be a hypocrite for nearly a year. He never intended to go through any of that and to bring shame and disgrace and even violence into his family because of his sin. But <clears throat> it happened. And you and I all have things in our lives that we never intended for the consequences to ever be as severe as they are or as long-lasting as they are, or the shame and the guilt to be as deep as it is. But, but it is, and it's there. What are we going to do with that? And uh, my prayer is that you'll do with it what David did with it in Psalm 51 as he confessed his sin to the Lord. In fact, um, when you read the title of it, in my Bible it talks about it being a song of repentance, and uh, it was something that David wrote that was very, very personal because it says in the title it had to do with his affair with Bathsheba. And yet he's giving it to the choir master for the congregation to sing. Now, can I ask you a question? How would you like for our next hymn to be Brother Dale leading us in a song that is written about your sin? I mean, think about that. That is amazing. And that gives us a real clue as to how deep David's repentance really was. In fact, he mentions in here that getting right with God was going to spare other people of what he had gone through. And most of us are way too proud and way too private for anything like that. We would never want anyone else to know our sin, even if it could spare somebody else. Well, this is where David is. Now, the whole premise of this message and even of this passage today is uh, built upon a couple of things that I want to make sure that uh, we know and that we understand because this means nothing, first of all, that there's not the existence of absolute truth. You see, if this culture and this world we live in is right, that says basically to coin an old phrase from the 60s and 70s, if it feels good, do it. And maybe we might say, and if you want it, go for it, kind of thing. If that's just true and all, moral, uh, all morality is relative and it's whatever you think, whatever you feel, whatever you want, whatever is popular, whatever is cool, whatever turns you on, whatever, then uh, none of this makes any sense today. And that's why the gospel doesn't make sense because they go, sinner, what do you mean? What's a sin? 
And how could anything be wrong? I enjoyed it, therefore it must be right. And uh, song after song has said for decades, it can't be wrong if it feels so right. Actually, yes, it can. And you and I are victims of that type of thinking, aren't we? And so there is the existence of absolute truth. God is truth. Jesus said he is the truth. And the Bible is the truth. And that's what defines what sin is. And then the other thing, too, is we live in a time now where nobody in the culture really believes in the fallen nature or depravity of humans. And we raise our children. Well, somebody said it used to be that in America we raised our children saying, you're a sinner and you are flawed, but you live in a great country that God has given us. Well, now it's just the opposite. You're great and you're perfect. It's all of them that are wrong. And so everybody's a victim of something else. Everybody's a victim of some type of ism, racism, capitalism. You know, all of that kind of stuff is all the problem. You're not the problem. It's society, and society has to change and bow its knee to accommodate you and whatever you want. No wonder we're in such a mess. Well, David knew that wasn't true. And deep down inside, you know that's not true as well. And you know that you've got things in your life that need to be made right with God. You've got things in your life that Christ died for, and you're acting as, well, you're trampling on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because you're acting as though it doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. And you want the family and the world and even the church, everything to bend to you and to accommodate you. Well, you need to have a David moment here where Nathan said, Thou art the man, and David writes this psalm in response to that event, and it's a God-centered psalm, and he uh, understood that he was the one that is corrupt. Now, what happens when sin is confessed? Think about this. It's more than just an admission. Everybody likes to admit nowadays, Oh, I'm broken. Well, I'm flawed. Well, I'm a mess and all of that. That's not repentance. That's just an admission, not really confession. It's not simply to escape consequences. Well, if I go before God and say, Okay, God, I'm sinned. That means all the consequences are gone. Didn't work. Didn't work for David. We don't confess our sins to gain forgiveness. Your confession, whether it's to a priest or whether you do it personally to God, is not the basis of your forgiveness. Your basis for your forgiveness is the death of Christ on the cross and Him bearing the wrath of God in your place for that sin. It always goes back to God. It always goes back to Jesus. And your confession has to be accompanied by a thing called repentance. We forsake it. We turn from that sin. And Solomon said, whoever confesses, that means agrees with God about the sin, and forsakes it shall find mercy. Repentance is necessary with confession. And uh, what, what is going on in our world today? It seems like people don't have a conscience. Well, they do. But Paul said to Timothy, it's like it's been seared with a hot iron. It's got scar tissue on it. It's no longer tender. I think maybe another way to look at it is, how many of you have heard a car alarm going off lately? I mean, you can't go to the go shopping somewhere without somebody's car alarm going off. Do you call the cops? 
Do you pull out a weapon and run to that car? Do you panic and cry for help? No, most of the time we just ignore it. And that's what's happening with the conscience today. And maybe you've even experienced this, those pangs of guilt, those pangs of conscience. I ought not do this. I need to turn away from this. And yet we just treat it like a car alarm going off in the distance. We ignore it and we go and we do whatever we want to do. And uh, David here, as we read this psalm, you'll notice that he's emotional and there's nothing wrong with that. It wasn't purely emotion, but he was emotional about this. The Bible does say godly sorrow leads to repentance. And so David has a godly emotion about this. I feel bad about this. Well, he should feel bad about this. He should be broken about this, right? He mentions in here that he has a broken heart. He should have after what he has done. And God works through a broken heart, by the way. In fact, it says in here that a broken heart is not overlooked by God. And so he is convicted here. Conviction's not just having something, I feel real convicted about this, or having a strong feeling about it. It means to be in a court of law. It's when the jury foreman says, we find you guilty of, and they name the charge, and you are a convict then. You are convicted of that crime. Well, David is convicted. There's no wiggling out of it. There's no getting out of it. He is an adulterer and he is a murderer in this situation. And he sees that because he actually prays in here, deliver me from the guilt, uh, the blood guiltiness. In other words, deliver me from execution in this. Have mercy on me is what he prays for. And David is actually agreeing with God in all of this. <clears throat> because we're covering quite a few verses today, I'm not going to read the whole thing all at once, but I will remind you this is his prayer and song of repentance that he publishes, and they use it in their worship. And it's to the chief musician, so it's a public thing, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So now his sin is becoming extremely public and well-known, and yet that just turns him more toward the Lord. It's as if David might be saying, I know that people in my kingdom will never understand and I'll never look the same in the eyes of maybe even family members, and that just causes me to run headlong to the Lord, the merciful one. And so let's break this into four parts and look at it like this. Number one, in this prayer, the goodness of God is clearly seen. The goodness of God is clearly seen. We don't want to make it only about us. I say only because we are in this. David was certainly in this. But the very first thing he says is, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to not my performance or my promise to do better, but according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. That means his conscience was killing him everywhere he went, everywhere he looked. He was reminded of what he had done. Verse 4, and he's talking about the ultimate against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And then he says this. This is important. 
that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, I'm acknowledging this so that when I am chastised, people don't look and say, boy, God is really being mean to him. Nope. God is just in what he is doing because of my sin. All of this points back to the glory of God, to the mercy of God, to the kindness of God, and to the uh, reputation, we might say, of the Lord. And we see in this little passage here, these few verses, we see that God is merciful. I don't care how deep you have fallen, you have a merciful, not a vengeful, but a merciful Father. He wants you to return. He wants you to repent. He is eager to forgive your sin. We see that God is merciful. God is forgiving. Like the prodigal son's father. We call that parable the parable of the prodigal son. It's really about the forgiving father, isn't it? That's the big deal. And this father waits for the son. This father runs to the son in a shameful manner for a rich person in that culture And then he restores that son in a shocking way to everyone else. Everyone watching would expect that son to be whipped. Expect that son to be an outcast. Expect that son to pay. He's got to work his way back into the good graces of the father. And yet the father shocks him by putting shoes on his feet, a ring on his finger, and a robe on him, and killing the fatted calf for him. That's a picture of your heavenly father. No matter how deep or grotesque or horrendous or long your sin may be, you have a father who is merciful and willing to forgive. We pick up in verse 5, notice number 2, we see in this confession, we see the depth of your depravity, it becomes evident. You see, when we compare ourselves to what God says, we see we're not just a little bit sinful, we're not just a a touch sinful, just a tad, there's just a little sprinkled in there. We are utterly and totally corrupt or depraved. Now, we may not act it out all the time, but it's there. In fact, David even goes into this. How bad was his sin? Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, from the moment I was born, I I had a sin nature going against God. And it gets worse than that. He says, And In sin, my mother conceived me. Not that the act that conceived him was a sin, but that even at his conception, the sin nature of his father and of Adam was passed on to him. It goes all the way back to the beginning for all of us. It's total depravity, in other words. And he said in verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, not just the outward things that other people see, And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Now purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Been a long time, hadn't it? Make me hear joy and gladness. Doesn't that sound good? That the bones that you have broken, that your crushing hand upon me might actually rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. Could you pray that this morning? And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Boy, David had a lot on his mind and on his heart about the price of his sin and of his actions, didn't he? Think about this. Depravity is not an event or an action. It's not like you're running around and you're just innocent and all of that, and then all of a sudden you do something, and from that point on you're depraved. You were conceived with a sin nature. Your little baby, beautiful as they are, they have a sin nature, and it comes out at 3 in the morning, doesn't it? They really don't have good manners or think about your well-being at all. And it gets worse as it goes on. Some of you are living through some of that right now. Depravity is not an event or an action. And understand this, God hates sin, all sin, even your sin. Your sin that you laugh about, that you excuse, that you think is no big deal. God hates it with a holy passion. How much does he hate your sin? Enough that he would butcher his own son, consider that. That's how bad he hates sin. He doesn't just hate the sin in the world. He hates sin in believers as well. He doesn't hate you, but he does hate your sin. And God, in love and in power, defeats sin in his children's life. But he does it from the inside out. And that's where it gets really hard. It's easy for me to restrain myself from doing something that would embarrass me publicly or cost me my position. That's easy to do. But to control it in my thoughts and in my motives, that's where, that's where the battle really is. And that's why we confess our sins to the Lord because we've got to go to war against our sin. All of it, even the stuff that people say is no big deal or the world laughs at it you can't you've got to go to battle and you've got to go to war against that because you're warring against your old nature the depravity the flesh that still tries to control you and when God saved you he saved you in justification from the penalty of sin you don't have to worry about that but now he is working to free you from sin's power Power over your thoughts, power over your actions, power over your reactions to things. Well, I'm sorry, I just wasn't thinking when I did that. Yeah, that's the problem. You need to stop and think. Wasn't that what really caused David's problem? Had he stopped, had he thought, but instead when he saw Bathsheba, he merely reacted out of his human nature and look what it got him. <clears throat> when he found out she was pregnant, he reacted with the thing that he could do as king. And that is put Uriah on the front lines and let the enemy kill him. Problem solved. No, no, it really wasn't. And so this is the kind of thing that uh, we need to think about, that God in love and power defeats sin from the inside out. A clean heart, right? A right spirit within me. That's what you need more than anything else today. You don't need to leave this service with a psychological message. You don't need to leave this service with a self-help message. You don't need to leave this with an encouraging attaboy type message. That's not really what you need. Now the Lord may give any of those things to you as He so chooses through His Word and by His Spirit, but uh, that's not my mission. My mission is simply to preach 
the Word of God. And what you need is a clean heart and a steadfast or right spirit before the Lord. And if you've got that, then you can face the battles and the trials of life. And instead of simply reacting like an animal does by instinct, which is going to be almost always wrong, you can respond in the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to say everything that comes to your mind. You don't have to blurt something out to your husband or your wife. You don't have to react to your kids in a way that you wish you hadn't have. You can respond. You can correct. You can communicate. But you can do it in a godly way and in a holy way because it's coming from a clean heart. And we always like to say, well, I really, I know my heart. Well, yeah, no, you really don't. And your heart is much more desperately wicked than you could even imagine. Well, I could never do anything like that. No, don't say that. Don't say that because you could. You could. And there are tons of people that are in prisons or some even in the grave today that if they could talk, they would say, I never thought I could do this either. And look what I did. And uh, it's just horrible to think about. And that's why our heart, more than just our actions has to be clean, has to be clean. Number three, let's pick up again and uh, let's make this point. What has been lost is remembered. Now this is going to be painful in verse 12 for David. Now notice he uses the word restore. Restore to me is the very first phrase. You know what restore means? You're fixing something. You're putting it back together. You're, you're cleaning it up, polishing it up, gluing it back together, or whatever it is you might do. You might restore a car. That would be kind of cool. My dad had a 37 Chevy that uh, was his first car. This particular one wasn't, but it was like his. And he had it in his garage for a long time because he was going to restore it. The thing was a piece of junk until it got restored then it's different. Think about restoring a piece of furniture. Or think about restoring a broken relationship with someone else. Now plug that in with this. Restore to me what? The joy of your salvation. That's interesting. We always say, give me back the joy of my salvation. Well, David would probably go, uh, excuse me, it's not your salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. And he gives it to you as a gift, right? Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Verse 15, O Lord, Open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. You see, as you look at each one of those things, from just merely having joy to being able to sing freely to the Lord, all of that was gone when David was in sin. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways. He used to, but not in the last nine months or so. He hadn't really had much moral authority to teach anybody or instruct anybody, not even his own family, on anything. And I can imagine the hypocrisy, the guilt, the conscience pangs that he had, the distance he felt from God, the emptiness in his worship, 
the inability to minister and to serve, just going through the motions time after time after time. And David is saying, don't just forgive me, but could I have this back again? And he remembered what he used to be. I wonder if during this time he remembered what it was like when he was just a nobody watching sheep for his father, playing his harp, and singing songs to the Lord. Can you imagine? I wonder if he thought about what it was like that day when he stood in faith and boldness before a giant that terrified all the professional soldiers of Israel. And with a slingshot, he brought the giant down. I wonder if he was thinking about those times when for a decade he was running as a fugitive from the king and Saul had all of his resources, the Israeli FBI and everybody after him, right? And God sustained him. And those times when he could have killed Saul, he knew you don't touch God's anointed. And Saul had been anointed king, just like David. You leave it in God's hands. I wonder if David thought about how sweet it used to be. I wonder if David thought during that time, I'd trade my crown in to go back to those days and just experience the joy of the Lord. Have you ever felt like that? The more God's blessed you, the more time has gone by, the more cold and distant and hard-hearted you seem to be. And David is saying, I remember how it used to... Can you remember how it used to be? Can you remember your zeal? Can you remember excitement? Can you remember joy? Can you remember being fed? Can you remember drinking deeply out of the waters of grace? Can you remember all of that? Maybe you need to pray this prayer as well. And so we see God's joy, God's stability, and God's credibility and our testimony involved in all of this. David said, restore all of that to me. Because when you're in sin, you begin to doubt God. You begin to question God. How can God possibly be sovereign? How can God be good? How can this be right? And it's as if David is saying, no, look in the mirror. Look in the mirror and see yourself. It's all still there and it's all available to you. But because of your stubborn pride and because of your stubborn self-will, you find yourself going in a way that you know is not right and yet you continue to do it and you're determined you're going to make it right and you forfeit all of these wonderful things. And then number four, worship is meaningful and glorifies God again. You see, David had not quit going to the tabernacle. David had not quit attending the ceremonies that the king of Israel would attend and uh, doing the things that the king of Israel would do. And that would include a lot of religious type stuff. It just didn't mean anything anymore. It was empty. It was hollow. He was just doing them by rote. Going through the motions. Is there anything more discouraging than that? 
What happens when a man no longer really loves his wife and just goes through the motions? What happens when a wife doesn't really love, maybe not even like her husband very much, but she goes through the motions? What do children feel when they don't really sense that their parents love them with that parental love? They feel like they're a nuisance. They feel like they're a pain. They feel like they are a burden. They feel like they are a problem. And that's why so many times, almost every time, when a divorce takes place, the children blame themselves, don't they? There was one little kid that said, It's my fault my parents got a divorce because if I had done better in math, they would get along and still be married. And the counselor wisely probed that. Why, why do you say that about your math? And he said, because my math grades were bad and my parents got into an argument about how to correct me. And if my grades had been better, they wouldn't have been in that argument and they would still be married. You say, well, that's silly. Yeah, but not to that child. See? All of this kind of stuff matters. We want our prayers answered. We want to have a warm relationship with God. We want the Word of God, that living, powerful Word of God, to do its work in our life. And that's what David is praying for. Worship to be meaningful and glorify God again. Look at verse 16. For you do not desire sacrifices. See, that's the ritual. He was still offering lambs and goats and bulls. just didn't mean anything anymore. You ever been through a Lord's Supper service where you talk about the body and the blood of Christ? <sighs> yeah. What an empty, dull, depressing situation that is. When it should be one of the most vibrant times of your life. He did this for me. The substitute for my sin. Well, David is offering these sacrifices... And that's not what God really wants. It wasn't as if God said, quit it, just stop it. I, don't want, I didn't mean it when I said that. No, God wanted the sacrifice to mean something. The offering of that lamb to mean something. And David is saying this. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. I mean, after all, he was the king. You do not delight in burnt offering. Now, here's what explains that. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a, not a dead cow, but a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Want to get God's attention? Have a broken heart. Have a repentant heart over your sin. God doesn't overlook that. Verse 18. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased, there's the key, pleased with the sacrifices of not ritual, but righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. And then they shall offer bulls on your altar." Seems strange, doesn't it? Some people have speculated, David didn't write that last part, it just got added later on. I tend to think it makes sense. 
David is talking here about all of these things coming together so that his worship is meaningful, that it is warm, that it is righteous, that it is pure, and that he offers it before the Lord and God accepts his worship, accepts his prayers, accepts his giving and all of those things, that all of the rituals are not pointing to him. You see, the Pharisees went through all of those same rituals and they pointed everything to them. Look at the sacrifice I offered. Look at the gift that I gave. Look at that poor widow woman. That's just that paltry gift she gave. Look at all I gave. And what got God's attention? What the widow gave. Because she gave it from a pure heart. And that's David's point here. Everything he had been doing and everything the nation was doing, just kind of going through the motion. And David's secret sin is kind of like the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. It affected a whole lot more than him, just like yours affects a whole lot more than you think. You see, this church may be held back by your secret sin. Your parenting may be held back by your secret sin. Your inability to have a good, close relationship with your spouse may be held back by your secret sin. And David is acknowledging here that his sin not only affected his personal worship, but apparently it was affecting the entire nation, wasn't it? He was the king after all. And other people were following suit. Other people were doing the same thing he was doing. And um, so God is calling him to get right. And I think that's one of the reasons why this psalm became public and was published. It's as if David is saying, I want to lead the nation into repentance. Not cover-ups. Not faking. Not going through the motions, not acting the part, not putting on a mask, not doing all of that, using all the right lingo, but to have it to be real, genuine, and authentic. And so he put this out after all he had done to cover it up, even to the point of murder. Now he exposes it to the point of bringing the nation to repentance as well. If the king can do it, I can do it. If the king can confess to what he has done, I can confess the sin that I have committed as well. There's something very encouraging about it, which kind of leads us to believe in our nation. Do we have sin? Yes. Do we have problems? Yes. Are we far from God? Yes. We all know that. But what if we, instead of saying, the country needs to change. What if every believer in America this morning got on their face and prayed heartfelt what David prayed? Would we see things change? Well, that's what David seems to be indicating when he said, my worship will become real again and I'll actually glorify God. And then there'll be sacrifices all over the country that will be pleasing to you and real. There's something about this that we tend to overlook. We isolate ourselves and say, it's just me and it's about me and it's nobody else's business. Well, technically and actually you affect everything else that is going on. And we need to be right with God and all God's people need to be right with God. And other people, instead of saying, oh, I'm having such a terrible life, a miserable life, I think I will become another gender and that will make me happy. No, 
What you need to do is repent of your sins and come to a merciful and loving Savior who hates sin, but yet poured His wrath out on His Son. And if you will trust in that, His death on the cross for you as a payment for your sin, He will actually forgive you. And He will actually have mercy on you. And He will give you a new life. And He'll give you His Spirit. And He'll give you a new nature. And you will have a new relationship with God. And if you say, well, I've already done that. Well, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as long as we stubbornly persist in saying, I think that's legalism and that's not wrong, and you're just covering up your, your dirty conscience. Quit covering up and get right with God. Do what you know is right and do it from a pure heart and do it for the glory of God. Repent of your sin today. Quit holding on to it. Quit covering it up. Quit acting like you can convince God to change His mind because you can't. And understand you've got a merciful God who wants to forgive you, is eager to forgive you, is ready to forgive you, and this God who can restore the joy of His salvation to your life. This God who can make the bells of your soul ring again. This God who can lighten your load because He's taking off the burden of sin and He's putting on it instead that burden that is tailor-made for you. And you find that what Jesus said is so true. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound good? And in this world of turmoil and confusion, in this world where everybody is just frantic and everybody's trying to do something, even if it's wrong. My dad was in the hospital, hooked up to all kinds of things in an emergency room, and they told him he couldn't move. He had to just lay there. And we would catch him every once in a while. He would set up and I'd say, Dad, you can't do that. Why? Because you're hooked up to all of these things and they told you you've got to be still. And he would lay back down frustrated and then he would get up again and we'd say, Dad, you've got to lay down. Why? Because of all of these things that are hooked up to you. And at one point he set up and he goes, I feel like I just need to do something even if it's wrong. You ever felt like that? That's the cry of the world. We've got to do something It's not right, and even if it's wrong, no wonder we're in the mess that we're in. And Christians are zipping their lip. We're participating in their sin. We're under the chastisement of God. Day and night, His hand is heavy upon us. And then we wonder why more people aren't getting saved. We wonder why our families aren't impacted. We wonder why we don't bear more fruit. Psalm 51, there's your answer. Could we bow our heads and close our eyes? Heavenly Father, as we look around at this broken world, forgive us for our participation in it. Forgive us for contributing to it. Forgive us for covering up our own sin like David did. Forgive us for justifying ourselves instead of realizing we're only justified by the blood of Christ. Forgive us, Father, for our rebellion. Forgive us, Lord, for the way that we just are not even conscious sometimes of what we're doing. We just do it out of instinct. We do it out of the pressure of the moment. And it's sin. And we need your forgiveness. So Lord, we do pray, create a clean heart in us, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. 
But we understand, Lord, that's not going to happen until we confess our sin and go to war against it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, convict us, cleanse us, draw us to you, and let us find forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, and acceptance in our Father and in His great and wonderful love. Thank you for that, and thank you for the death of Christ, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sin. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who brings that conviction to us. May we be receptive, and may we act on it for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.